0: Uh, We are so excited to see people getting on mission, going out, and they are sharing Christ wherever God leads them. They are going, they are baptizing, meaning to win people to the Lord, and they are teaching. And so we are seeing that happening in our church. And friends, that's exciting. So let me ask you a question as we get going. Are you ready to do that this week? So think in your mind right now, who do you know in your life? Co-worker, classmate, neighbor, family member, friend, who needs to know the gospel, who needs to hear it? And will God give you the courage to go this week? That We hope so, we want to hear about it as the Lord works. Well, as we begin, and as you turn to Acts chapter 15, it's page 923 in your pew Bible. Um, if you're at home, we want to encourage you, get your Bible out. Don't just passively listen to these sermons, but really engage in them. Let's all get to Acts chapter 15. And while you're opening up, let me tell you uh, what our family did this year for the very first time, we started a garden. It was an absolute economic disaster. I put so much money into this. I went to Tractor Supply just to get a big 40-gallon tub for my rhubarb alone. Rhubarb is God's favorite vegetable. You may not even know it's a vegetable, but it is. It is the best plant you can grow. I thought, I'm going to have a super abundant supply of rhubarb. How do I know this? Because I went to Palmer Nursery, and I bought super soil. Super soil is going to grow my rhubarb. And I tended it all year. I watered it the right time. I looked it up on the internet. I knew what to do. And it yielded one single stalk of rhubarb. It was a failure. I didn't say I was a failure. My garden was a failure. There's a big distinction between the two of those. But one of the things that I learned, again, and I grew up with a garden, and my family had a massively big garden. We've never done a garden before because of what I'm about to tell you. Weeds are a nuisance to gardening. And I want to tell you something about weeds in the church. Did you know that wherever you have the gospel, you will find the weed of legalism? Wherever you have the gospel of grace, you're going to find the weed of legalism and it was beg- it was beginning to grow up even in the first century church and the weed of legalism always goes by this spiritual mathematical formula jesus plus works righteousness or jesus plus something you have to do equals salvation This formula, friends, listen, I want you to hear this. It's in every single religion on the planet since human history began other than Christianity. I'll give you four examples. In Buddhism, you're going to reach nirvana. Nirvana is when you no longer care, you no longer have desires, you're no longer ruled by them because desires are considered evil in Buddhism. You reach nirvana, freedom, release, through living the Noble Eightfold Path. You've gotta live that path if you're going to ever get to Nirvana. In Hinduism, you escape the cycle of re- reincarnation when you master the four yogas. In Islam, you reach heaven when you begin to live according to the Quran to the very best of your ability. In Catholicism, it is grace plus merit It is Christ plus your works, your sacraments. It is faith plus works that saves you. Listen, in every religion on the planet since the dawn of human history, there has been a weed of legalism growing up in their midst, other than Christianity. You see, Christianity is built on the gospel of grace. And we're going to take a deep dive into that in this passage, but I want to show you the the disagreement, the debate, the doctrine, and the decision that all happened in Acts chapter 15. And we're gonna watch them form a council to work their way through this dilemma. Now, by the way, there's been several councils in the church. This is the very first council in the Christian evangelical church. And we're gonna get to the disagreement first. So let's get our Bibles open. Here we go, verse one, the disagreement. But some men came down from Judea. Stop right there. I'm sorry. I know that's irritating, but I always want to give you what that means. Coming down from Judea means come down from Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a city in Judea, the southern part of Israel. And whenever you left Jerusalem, you went down because Jerusalem's on a mountain. And whenever you went to Jerusalem in the Bible, you go up. So even though they're going north, These men to Antioch, hundreds of miles north. It says they came down because they're coming down the mountain of Jerusalem. And they were teaching the brothers. They come into Antioch to a Gentile church, and they're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And we're going to find in verse 5 that this group had a name. They were the party of the Pharisees. That's who they belonged to. Now, the first believers in the church were Jewish. That's really important to know. And they had grown up in Judaism, and they had all of these traditions. I'll give you some examples. Even in the commandment, one of the Ten Commandments, to keep the Sabbath. To a Jewish person, the Sabbath day is Saturday, then and today, still Saturday today. And to a Jewish person in the first century, in order to keep the commandment whole or the uh, Sabbath holy, then there were all kinds of traditions that taught you how to do it. In fact, I will tell you one of them. It was this, if you're a parent and you had a little toddler and they were playing on the Sabbath and they fell down and they hurt their elbow and it's bleeding and they came running up to you in tears with their arms up and wanting you to pick them up and comfort them, then mom, dad, you can pick them up on the Sabbath only if they don't have a rock in their pocket. You have to search their pockets before you pick them up on the Sabbath. And you've got to take that rock out if they've been playing with a rock and put it in. If you pick up a child with a rock in his pocket on a Sabbath, then you just broke the Sabbath. Now listen, that's just one, now watch this, of 1,521 traditions of how to keep the Sabbath holy. 1,521. See, Judaism, the religion of the Jewish people, was filled with all of these traditions. And these people, this party of the Pharisees, was saying to this Gentile church, everybody on the planet is either a Jewish person or a non-Jewish person, which the Bible calls a Gentile. There are only two people on the planet, Jews and Gentiles. And they were telling these Gentiles at the church of Antioch that, yes, I'm really glad you put your faith in Jesus, but that's not enough. You've got to now get circumcised if you want to get saved. And it throws the church into a crisis. See, at first it wasn't that big of a problem because there's only Jewish people in the church, but now there's more Gentile people than Jews that are getting saved, saved, and an undercurrent of division is developing. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah of this group who died for their sins, but they also believed that no one could get saved unless that person was a Jew. Now, there's a dilemma for a Gentile. How can a Gentile become a Jew? Well, they had two ways you could do that. One was circumcision, and the other one was baptism. If you remember the wedding at Cana, where Jesus turned water into wine, they were purity jars, they were large, they were huge. They would actually have jars big enough filled with water for this purpose only, to take a Gentile and immerse him in this water over the head so that he was baptized and now spiritually identifying with Israel. See, they had a way to make a Gentile a spiritual Jew. And they're saying, if you want to get saved, it's faith in Jesus, the Messiah, plus circumcision and baptism. And they were so persistent that it throws the church into a crisis. They're the circumcision party, this group of men. They're going to become, by the time Galatians was written, they're going to become what's known as the Judaizers. They're going to follow the apostle Paul from city to city all over the Roman Empire. They're going to stir up opposition against them. They're going to get him almost killed over and over. And Paul warns of them in the book of Philippians, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, meaning who require circumcision in order to be saved. You see, for Paul, and I want you to hear this, listen to the right mathematical formula. Jesus plus anything does not equal salvation. It's heresy. It's Jesus alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. Now, I totally butchered my prepositions, and I'll straighten that up in a minute. But they taught that faith in Christ plus keeping the law of Moses was the means of salvation. Here's the core disagreement is Christianity a religion of works or is it a religion of grace? Now let me stop and ask you to think about that for a moment. Examine your own theology. Do you believe that you need to do anything in addition to what Christ has done for you in order to be saved? And if your answer is no, that is only grace of God, it's only faith, it's only what Christ alone has done, then you have right theology, but there are people that are believing legalism all around you. Do you have the ability to straighten up their thinking? Well, it's going to go into a debate, number two. Look at verse two. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem down from Antioch, to the apostles and the elders about this question so here we go we got such a crisis that this group threw the church into they couldn't resolve it they said we've got to go to the main church the main church the church of jerusalem we got to go to jerusalem with this we've got to get a council formed and work through this they get there verse 4 And they declared, Paul and Barnabas, all that God had done with them. They told them all about this missionary journey that they had just been on up to Turkey, modern-day Turkey. Then it was Asia Minor, where hundreds and thousands of Gentiles were saved. They tell the church at Jerusalem about this. They report to the church. But then look what happens in verse 5. Some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up at Jerusalem in this meeting and said, it is necessary to circumcise them, the Gentiles, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Friends, there are groups in Pennsylvania that teach this, that if you want to be a Christian, you need to have faith in Jesus and keep all the dietary rules of the Old Testament and the law of Moses, the Mosaic covenant. That's happening not even 60 minutes from here. Wherever you have the garden of the gospel, you're going to get the weeds of legalism. You've got to be able to see and discern where they are so you can pull them out. Now let me take you back to rhubarb. How many of you have ever heard of the burdock plant? you are botanically challenged. The burdock plant, I'll describe it. It's those round little brown nettles that stick on your clothing if you even brush against them. Now you know what I'm talking about. Do you know that the burdock plant is nearly indistinguishable from rhubarb? One of the main ways you tell the difference is look at the underside of their leaves and if they're soft and fuzzy, that's a burdock plant. Wherever you have the gospel of grace, you're going to get a counterfeit called legalism. And you've got to be able to discern it, whether it's in your own theology, your own belief system, or in somebody's, somebody else's, and you've got to be able to know how to lovingly uproot it for them. And I'm going to teach you how to do that from Peter in just a few minutes. We've got believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees. They're arguing and they're debating a works-based christianity and it was a critical moment for christianity and let me read a quote to you and you can see it on the screen from a theologian called lenski this is brilliant he says this to add anything to christ as being necessary to salvation circumcision or any human work of any kind is to deny that christ is the complete savior that is fatal A bridge to heaven that is built of 99% of Christ and even only 1% of anything human breaks down at the joint and ceases to be a bridge. Even if Christ be thought of as carrying us 999 miles of the way and something merely human required for the last mile, that would leave you hanging in the air with heaven being still far away, and I would add, unreachable. Here's what Lenski is saying, and here's what you want to take away from that quote. If you add anything to Christ that is necessary for salvation, that is a fatal blow to the gospel. That is not salvation. You cannot be saved with Christ plus anything. You will at best be a professing believer. It threw the church into no small dissension. You know what that word means? uproar. That's what the Greek word there means, uproar. And they had a debate, which means in verse 2 and verse 7, thorough questioning. And we don't know how many hours the debate raged on, but Luke tells us that finally Peter stood up to speak, and he brought the gospel to bear. Now, I want you to hear what I'm about to tell you. If you've got a friend who is a believer and you can tell that they are in a dungeon, they are in a prison, they never can quite believe that God truly could love them, that God, they just have this lingering sense that they are a disappointment to God. They don't get the language of grace. They've got a weed of legalism in their heart. And even though that door cell to that prison has already been wide opened up by Christ, they have been set free. I know so many believers that are still sitting in prison because even though the door to the prison is open, they don't quite truly believe they can leave. You've got to be able to pull them out and to build the uproot that works righteousness in them. They did not get saved in their own work, and they do not stay saved in their own work. They did not please God for salvation by their effort. They cannot continue to gain his favor and keep his favor by their effort. That is the gospel of grace. How do you speak it? What does it even look like? Here we go. This is the meat of the message. Point number three, the doctrine. And watch us unfold this from what Peter is about to preach. Verse 7, God made a choice among you, Peter said, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So point number one of five is God's giving of salvation proved his grace to the Gentiles. The fact that God saved the Gentiles, it was his idea. Are you going to really argue with God, Peter is saying? Are you going to really question what God is so clearly doing? You heard Paul and Barnabas declare all of what God's doing among the Gentiles. And Peter says, I was the first one to preach the gospel to them. Who are we to dispute with God? And then he's going to move on to point number two. And God, who knows the heart, verse 8, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit. Not only did God save the Gentiles, the giving of the Holy Spirit proved his grace to the Gentiles. The Gentiles had the Spirit of God just like the Jewish people have the Spirit of God. There is no difference. Number three, proof that you don't need Christ, plus anything, was at verse 9. He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. What's that mean, having cleansed their hearts by faith? Friends, listen, just take one word and replace it all. Forgiveness. Christ forgave them. God's forgiveness of their sins proved his grace to the Gentiles. Now, I want you to stop and pause for a second because, listen, if you're a Christian long enough, you completely get numb to some of these truths. And therefore, you lack power and persuasiveness with unsaved people. I want you to just remember for a moment, and just like me, you were an absolute rebel to God. I don't care if you were three years old when you got saved, you were a rebel. You were defying God. You were falling short of his mark. And don't do what the world does and liberal Christians do. Don't compare yourself to any other person on this planet going, well, at least I'm not like that person. Therefore, I'm fairly righteous. No, God won't let us compare ourselves to any other human being. He takes us vertical to the God-man, Jesus. How do we look next to him? And the very best that we do falls short of the perfections of Christ. We're sinners. And the moment that you believe, friends, listen, recover the power of this. Recover the moment that you you believed and you knew that God took your debt away. He resolved it. He erased it. He blotted it out. He threw your sins into the deepest ocean. It's irretrievable. He threw them from as far as the east is to the west. You can't track them. There's no north-south pole going that way. They don't come back to you. This is the power of grace. This is the power of the gospel. And when he forgave you, this is the best part. He dropped the charges, which is what forgiveness means. He dropped the charges. And then God did something that only God can do in his infinite power. He said, I will never bring them back to my mind. Do you remember that, Christian? Those sins that Christ paid for, God said, I will never retrieve them, I will never track them, and I will never remember them because I blotted them out. That's the power of forgiveness. And Peter says, Jewish believers, that's what God's done for you, and that's what he's done for the Gentiles. Why are you questioning their faith? Then number four, he says in verse 10, Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? It's never been salvation by works, not in the Old Testament either. Look at Romans chapter four. How did Abraham, how was he saved? He was saved by faith, and God credited it to him as righteousness. Listen, this is the best way I know how to explain it. Everybody in the Old Testament had a credit card. The moment they believed they were given a credit card and they were able to spend and cash in on God's forgiveness, even though Christ on the cross would not come until their future, their credit allowed them to make a purchase of forgiveness today where Christ would pay for it tomorrow, just like our credit cards work. You know what we have? We don't have a credit card. We have a debit card. And your pin number is the cross. And when you make a transaction of God's forgiveness and you confess a sin that you have committed, you have an unlimited bank account of forgiveness. And you can draw on that at all times. Therefore, you are perpetually clean before the Lord. You are righteous. And confession is the way that God cleanses you from that sin. See, Jesus plus anything equaling salvation never worked for the Jews, Peter said. So why are you applying it to the Gentiles? Tim Keller said it masterfully. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. It's a complete different trajectory. But all of what Peter has been preaching in this little sermonette was leading to his coup de grace point. The greatest point is point number five. Look what it says in verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus just as they will. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus alone. It's never had anything else. And God did all the work in saving us by sending Jesus to die in our place for our forgiveness. And Even believing that truth is an expression of God's gift of grace. Now, let me really slow down a little bit, because this is one of the most misunderstood things. About 12 years ago, I had an elderly man call me. His daughter called me. So my dad's dying. Doctors came in at four o'clock in the morning to his hospital room and said, listen, you need to sign these papers. We don't think you're gonna survive another day. I went in that day, that morning. I sat down next to him. I said, why did you want me to come? What did you wanna ask? It was like an apple that you go to pick in October and it just seemed to fall off the branch before you even touched it. He said to me, I don't, I'm not a Christian. I'm not saved. Show me how. I need to get saved." Here's what I read to him, Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. You know what he grew up in? He grew up in a religious climate, being taught all of his life that you got to have faith in God. And that's your work, that's your part. Yes, it's through Christ who died on the cross, but your faith is what you have to do. And I showed him what the Greek grammar really says in this verse, and the Greek grammar is this, the gift of God, look at that passage, is connected to the word faith. Faith is the gift. And we've got Christmas coming. Right? And you're going to give gifts, and you're going to get gifts, and did you earn them, and do you require people to earn them before you give them? No, you butcher the name gift if you do. A gift is freely given and freely received. You cannot earn God's favor, not even one work. Faith is a gift of God. He opened your eyes so that you can believe, and he gives you salvation. But what is grace? What is grace? Because we use it all the time. We even name our children sometimes grace. What is grace? Grace is always, always in the Bible about God's willing, loving power to forgive your sins. Grace is always about the removal of sin. And you're thinking right now, wait a minute, what's mercy then? Is mercy any different? Yes, mercy is different. Mercy is God's loving, willing power to begin healing you from the damage that yours, this world's, and others' sins have caused you. Mercy from God is always about repair. Grace is always about removal. You've got to get it down. We've got our pop theology definition. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy's not getting what you do. That's not biblical enough. It's this. It's God's willing power and love to remove your sins. That's grace. And it's perpetually being given to us. Peter was so persuasive. He literally had a mic drop moment verse 12. For all the assembly fell silent and did debate. Why because grace is beautiful. Now listen to this. It ruins The legalist who wants to believe they can earn God's favor. Grace means complete dependency on God, complete personal helplessness. Grace means you failed God's standard, you are guilty, you deserve His judgment, but God freely says, I'll take your sins upon my Son, and I will give you His righteousness in return. See, the message of grace uproots the weed of legalism. And we have desperately got to learn to speak that language. And it's going to move to the final point, the decision. We had the disagreement. We had the debate. We had the doctrine. Now we end with the decision. James stands up. Peter's done. The assembly stops talking. James stands up. He quotes from the prophets. Look in your text. That's plural, but he's only going to quote from Amos. So this is not the whole sermon that James gives. He's, Luke just selects one of them, one of the examples. But we've got James, a half-brother of Jesus. He is the leader of the church of Jerusalem. I told you last week that the elders work as a team. There is a plurality, but there is, and while every elder is equal in authority, not every elder is equal in influence. James was the most influential Apostle and elder at the church of Jerusalem. And he stood up and he led them to a final decision. Verse 19, we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. In other words, don't require them to perform anything for their salvation. Why? Because grace is not about works. It's about faith. It's about grace. It's about Christ. Do not trouble the Gentiles. But then he he goes on, and he's going to show us how to maintain fellowship between Jewish people and Gentile people. He writes, verse 20, But but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols. Now, let me tell you what he's talking about. Because this gets feeling like, is James saying, you've got to earn God's favor? You've got to do Christ plus these four things in verse 20? Here's the problem they were having in the Roman Empire. Let's say you're alive in the first century and you're working at a job. They had all this first century. And one of your co-workers invites you to a celebration Friday night after work is done. And they want you to come out. They want you to have a feast with them. But you know something that they're not telling you. What you know is this, that co-worker worships the goddess Aphrodite. And what that co-worker is going to be doing is Friday morning, taking a bowl to the pagan temple of Aphrodite, getting it sacrificed by a priest or a priestess. And the priest will take some of the fat and some of the internal organs and burn it on an altar to Aphrodite, then the priest will divide up the rest of the meat, taking just a little bit of it, giving you the rest of the meat. And the little bit that the priest takes, they're going to sell to a butcher who will take it to their stall at the marketplace and make money. They buy it from the priest, which brings revenue to the temple. But the part that they give you you're gonna go home and you got all this meat without refrigeration, you got all this meat without preservation, you gotta have a party and you bring your closest friends to celebrate your blessings that Aphrodite has given to you. And you're in a quandary, Christian. Should you go? Should you go to the party and eat meat that was devoted to be holy to Aphrodite? Or should you go to the marketplace And look under the label of the meat, they didn't have them, but look under the label figuratively and find out where did this meat come from? Did it come from a temple or did it come from a farmer? And is it okay to eat meat if it came from a temple? This was a raging problem in the first century church. And they had some people saying, it doesn't matter where you eat the meat. It doesn't matter where the meat's coming from. It doesn't matter if the party is one of a blessing to Aphrodite who's given you blessings. Just go and be a witness. And others were over here going, yes, it matters. And it's equivalent to today of friends, can you, Christian, do you have the freedom to have a beer? Do you have a freedom to have a glass of wine? Is there anything in your faith that says no? Or is there anything in your faith that says yes? Well, you've got some over here that are Christians and they love the Lord and they have freedom to drink. And then you've got some over here that love God and they're a Christian and they say, no, it's not okay to drink. We've got to abstain from the things of the world. Well, what if you're over here and you take advantage of your freedom and it leads this person over here to stumble in their faith? Well, I guess if that person who's a leader in the church, that person who's a a mature Christian can drink, then it really doesn't matter. I'll just start going to parties. This was an absolute raging conundrum in the early church. So big that Paul writes this later. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, who are mature spiritually, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died... Thus, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Now, Christian, here's what James is saying. He gives four things in verse 20. They're going to write to the church of Antioch and say, Listen, you're saved by Christ alone. Right? Through your faith by grace in Christ. There is nothing you need to do to add into that. But now live in such a way as to enjoy your freedom, but not demand your rights. Enjoy your freedom, but don't exercise your rights in a way that destroys the faith of someone not as spiritually strong as you. You give those rights up. And that is so hard for American pragmatic individualists who cling to our rights like us. But that's love. You see, it's a complex situation. And I'm going to end on a cliffhanger because I am seconds from being done. And next week, Lord willing, you come back. We're going to find out, how do you deliver the gospel of grace to people who don't understand it, people who are questioning it, people who are desperately in need of it? That's what we'll pick up next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for all that we learned today. Father, this debate was raging. They had to form a council. This disagreement was so bad. But Lord, what they did was they went to the truth. They went to the word of God. They didn't just give opinions. They didn't have leaders stand up and say, well, here's my opinion and here's my opinion. They went to write doctrine that went to the Word of God. That is always where we go when we need understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways, acknowledge God, and He will make your path straight. Father, may we do that in big ways and little ways, in the church and out of the church. In our freedoms that we have in Christ, And even in the way that we voluntarily give those freedoms up to protect the faith of a weaker brother. Lord, teach us. Teach us how to pull up the weeds of legalism so that the grace of God can free people. It is stunningly beautiful, the gospel is. Lord, may we not mar it. May we not destroy it. May we not build anything on it. It is through faith, by grace, in Christ, all of those alone, that we are saved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.